Welcome to Rustbelt Abolition Radio. My name is Alejo. In this episode, we speak with Lisa Gunther about the relationship between death penalty, sovereignty, and abolition. Lisa is an abolitionist who is currently a professor of philosophy at Queen's University in so-called Ontario, Canada, and has written extensively about the death penalty, solitary confinement, and social death. Lisa deconstructs the state's right to kill or let live, that is, the relation between the Western philosophical tradition's conception of sovereignty and the death penalty, as it specifically operates within settled colonial racial capitalist social relations. From there, we move to discuss abolitionist forms of relationality that interrupt sovereignty's hold on life and death. But before we begin, here's Cave Said with some movement news you may have missed. After being pulled over for a traffic violation and unlawfully arrested on the spot as a suspect in a robbery on the basis of racial profiling, Omar Gent has spent a decade in prison while fighting the continuous violations of his civil rights and lack of due process during his legal battle 10 years ago. Omar's story, which highlights unlawful behavior by police officers, judges, and public officials, is indicative of a pattern of discriminatory and illegal activity at every step of the criminal injustice system in Colorado. For more information, please visit Free Our Brothers with Omar Jen on Facebook and sign his petition at www.change.org p stop slavery in Colorado. You can also contact his supporters to learn how to help more by emailing cehomar1 at gmail.com. On May 20th, hundreds of protesters in Alabama demonstrated and marched to the state capitol in opposition to the state's recent abortion ban. The state's newly approved abortion ban will effectively outlaw almost all abortions, even in cases of rape and incest. Similar authoritarian and patriarchal policies have been adopted by other states such as Kentucky, Mississippi, Ohio, and Georgia, where abortions have been outlawed after a fetus reaches six weeks, so-called fetal heartbeat laws. The new law in Alabama will make performing an abortion a felony. On May 25th, hundreds of demonstrators confronted the Indiana Ku Klux Klan in Dayton, Ohio. The Indiana KKK claimed to have been invited to Dayton by sympathizers and held a rally in Courthouse Square. In all, a total of nine KKK members and sympathizers showed up and were protected by 720 cops in the face of 600 anti-fascist and anti-racist counter-protesters. In total, the city of Dayton spent around $650,000 protecting nine clan members. So my name is Alejo, here with Keith Said, and you're listening to Rustbelt Abolition Radio, an abolitionist media and movement building project based in Detroit, Michigan. Today, we speak with Lisa Gunther, an abolitionist and critical phenomenologist. Currently, she is a professor of philosophy at Queen's University in so-called Ontario, Canada, and has written extensively about the death penalty and social death, such as in her 2013 book, Solitary Confinement, Social Death and Its Afterlives, and most recently in a quoted volume titled Death and Other Penalties, Philosophy in a Time of Mass Incarceration. Welcome, Lisa, and thank you for joining us. Thank you, Alejo. It's lovely to be here. So maybe let's begin by contextualizing your theoretical practice and political practice. So you, you've written extensively about the death penalty and have also, uh, I believe, also facilitated uh, discussion groups with people on the throw in the so-called United States. So can you sort of share with us how you became interested, as it were, in abolition? But also for that, um, I understand that very recently, one of the people on death row that was part of this discussion group that you facilitated, Don Johnson, was executed by the state of Tennessee. 
So our condolences to you and, and to those that, that were close to Don as well. Thank you. Yeah, so I guess to provide a little bit of context for that work, um, I, I am originally from Canada and I moved to Nashville, Tennessee in 2007 to begin teaching philosophy at Vanderbilt University. And when I arrived here in Tennessee, I mean, the first thing that struck me was just the way that race and class are spatially distributed in the city in terms of who goes where, who lives where, um, where the wealth is and where the poverty is concentrated. And I was very fortunate in my second semester teaching here to spend a month attending a uh, an intensive graduate seminar by Angela Davis. So she was here as a visiting scholar and she taught an intensive graduate seminar on slavery that began with the 13th Amendment. So it began with the exception built into the abolition of slavery for the enslavement of people who have been, quote, duly convicted of a crime, end quote. And so living in Tennessee and trying to make sense of where I had landed and then working through the, the readings that Angela Davis assigned for this seminar and being in conversation with her and on her own work on prison abolition opened up to me a perspective both on my everyday life in this place, now called the United States, and also on my practice of philosophy. And so this is what set me on the path of becoming a prison abolitionist, and also eventually becoming involved in discussions and conversations with people who are currently and formerly incarcerated. And so one place where I have had many conversations with people who are incarcerated is at Riverbend Maximum Security Institution here in Nashville. And that's where I met Don Johnson, who was executed just last week. And it's hard to talk about because I'm still processing his loss, but uh, I guess if I begin by talking about when I met first met Don, that would help to provide a little bit of context for both the political work and the kind of more theoretical work that I've done on the death penalty. Yeah. Um, so back in 2011, uh, a really wonderful prison chaplain named Jeannie Alexander who is a prison abolitionist and uh, an activist, created the opportunity for me to come into the prison and to facilitate a philosophy discussion group with men on death row. And Don Johnson was one of those men. There were about 15 men on death row who came to that first meeting and also about five graduate students from, from Vanderbilt who were permitted by the prison to come in and to gather with these people on death row to just see what it, what we could do together, what we could talk about and how we could build solidarity that reached across the prison walls. And so we began this weekly discussion group, which is still continuing at Riverbend. It's called REACH Coalition. And REACH stands for both the verb of reaching in from the community uh, outside of the prison through the prison walls and also reaching out from the community inside the prison into the state that holds them captive. 
And it also stands for uh, reciprocal education and community healing. So our practice of reciprocal education was rooted in the radical pedagogy of Paulo Freire and Miles Horton. And our practice of community healing was um, really rooted in both principles and practices of restorative justice and transformative justice. And so on that very first day when I came into the prison to meet the men who were in Unit 2, which is the death row unit, I remember meeting Don among many other people. And Don was very quiet, and he listened to everything very attentively and very curiously, but he didn't say very much. And a few weeks into our meetings, he came up to me after our session and he said, I just got a letter from my daughter and she's coming to visit me for the very first time. And he was really excited, but he was also really nervous because as he explained to me, his daughter was also the daughter of his victim. So he had murdered his wife and their daughter, his adopted daughter, Connie's uh, daughter, grew up without a mother and without a father because of the violence that he inflicted on Connie. And so he wasn't sure what he was going to say to his daughter when they met, but he was full of hope uh, for that meeting. And they did meet. She, He told me later that she was very angry with him and that she wanted to tell him how his act of violence had affected her life in horrible ways, in ways of irreversible loss. But the meeting also ended with her saying that she could no longer carry this hate around with her and that that was beginning to destroy her. And so what began in that meeting was uh, a relationship that unfolded over the next decade or so, almost decade, to the point where Cynthia, Don's daughter, advocated very strongly for his clemency and also against the death penalty with other people who had been on death row and were no longer there, were in the community. And so uh, it was just very, very difficult, but also very beautiful in some ways to gather on the grounds of the prison to honor Don's life and to build solidarity with the people who are still in cages in Riverbend, both on death row and beyond. So we wanted to ask you about one of the key concepts in in the Western philosophical tradition, uh, which is sovereignty. Very briefly, can you tell us why it is still an important and debated concept today and how it helps us think about the relationship between politics and death? That is not only the relationship between politics and the death penalty, but of social death more generally? Sure. So my, my thoughts about sovereignty are really complicated right now because over the last few years, I've really focused on trying to learn about the connections between settler colonialism and the carceral colonial state. And so indigenous sovereignty, the meaning of the word sovereignty in indigenous sovereignty is very different from the way I had been thinking about sovereignty before 
um, and especially the way I've been thinking about sovereignty in relation to the death penalty. So if we're thinking about the sort of sovereign power that uh, empowers a state to kill one of its own citizens, then this is not the sort of sense of sovereignty that Indigenous nations are claiming as a as a root of their power and resurgence and self-determination. So I'll just focus on the sense of sovereignty claimed by the carceral colonial state. So sovereign power in the sense of state power to kill or to let live is a power that scholars like Foucault and Derrida have analyzed as a power at the at the really at the foundation of the state. What does a state mean? State to be a state is to have the power, the legitimate authority to use violence and to construct an a legal apparatus to justify that violence as justice. A lot of the thorny issues that I've tried to work through with respect to not just the death penalty, but also mass incarceration and the hyper-incarceration of people of color, people with disabilities, uh, queer, trans, and gender non-conforming people, is just how to analyze and disentangle this state violence or how to connect state violence to interpersonal violence and the structural violence of racism, poverty, colonialism, um, and the gender binary. So in your recently published essay in the co-edited volume of Death and Other Penalties, Philosophy in a Time of Mass Incarceration, you engage with Jacques Derrida's deconstruction of sovereignty, more specifically with the series of seminars Derrida gave while he was in the United States titled The Death Penalty. One of your claims is that Derrida does not seem to account for the quite different quote-unquote political structure of sovereignty in the United States, given that the history of slavery and racial capitalism both continue to shape the practice of state execution. Derrida wrote a letter of support to Mumia Abu-Jamal in the 1990s and cites his case a few times in the seminars. However, you make a point to not merely criticize Derrida for these oversights and inconsistencies, but to think the logic of the death penalty, especially interest, indemnity, and property in relation to prison abolitionists and what you call critical race theorists. Can you tell us more about this nexus of interest, indemnity, and property and how it plays out in the death penalty and discussions of its abolition? Sure. So I guess one way to understand sovereignty as the power to kill or let live is both the power of the state to kill its citizens as a form of punishment as, and as a form of punishment that anchors uh, and kind of marks the, the horizon of all other forms of punishment. But often uh, we forget that sovereignty also includes the power to let live or the power of mercy. And one of the things that I think Derrida, um, Derrida's work on the death penalty is really valuable for is in reminding us that even when the state pardons someone or decides not to punish someone, not to use violence against them, that is still an act of sovereignty. It is, it is still an affirmation of the sense in which it is the state who decides who lives and who will be allowed to die. And so this is part of the basis of Derrida's deconstruction of death penalty abolition rhetoric that calls for mercy and calls for love and calls for pardon as an, a departure from the state violence of 
killing or punishing through uh, execution. And Derrida's deconstruction of the what seems to be an opposition between um, states that execute and activists who call for the end of, of executions and for mercy, for pardon, is that if the conversation stays at that level, then uh, the whole concentration of power in the state to kill or to let live is remains unquestioned. One of the things that I was wanting to interrogate more critically about Derrida's work on sovereignty and the death penalty is that he's writing very much out of a European intellectual tradition. And yet he's giving these death penalty lectures in the United States, and he's clearly wanting to make his analysis relevant to the place where he is speaking. And so he, in, in ways that I think are uh, incomplete, he makes several references to the fact that the United States is exceptional as a democracy that continues to practice execution, state execution, and that it that there's also a, a racial dimension to the practice of state execution in the United States, that people who are convicted of killing white people are much more likely to get the death penalty than people who have been convicted of killing people of color. He doesn't, I mean, he talks about the racialization of the state violence of execution, but he actually doesn't get to that level of detail uh, through an engagement with the Baldus study, which was part of a Supreme Court case, McCleskey v. Kemp, which found that there was systemic racial discrimination in who ended up uh, getting the death penalty and who ended up, uh, which homicide cases ended up becoming capital cases. So Derrida's analysis of race in relation to the death penalty is very superficial. And part of that superficiality is... I think, a, a Eurocentric account of sovereignty as well, where Derrida does not, in that essay at least, really think through the ways in which, in the United States, state sovereignty is connected to popular sovereignty, to the sovereignty of the people, and that this has been racialized in very particular ways. And so the Fugitive Slave Act, for example, basically deputized any white citizen to um, assume police powers to return escaped slaves to their owners, as if this were a form of theft, that slaves were stealing the property of slave owners by taking themselves away from uh, the site of slavery. And so by failing to kind of make the connection between state sovereignty and popular sovereignty and the connection between sovereignty and whiteness in particular, and citizenship and whiteness. I think Derrida misses really some really important aspects of the particular violence that constitutes state execution. And he also misses really important aspects of abolition movements, which are not, if we, if we think about death penalty abolition in the context of prison abolition, as I think we must, then uh, abolition movements are not led by and large by white bourgeois people who have liberal principles of human dignity and the sanctity of life. Rather, they're 
led prison abolition movements and abolition movements in this broader sense that includes the abolition of slavery are led by people of color who have a much different analysis of the extent and the depth of sovereignty that includes the racialization of sovereignty and its popularization in this um, sort of deputizing of white people, not just in the past, but also um, in an ongoing way to both use interpersonal violence against people of color and indigenous people, and also to appeal to uh, state protection and state violence to affirm their capacity to defend themselves and to defend whiteness as property with lethal force. Yeah, so I wanted to actually just uh, follow up on, on that. Uh, so there's this sort of two concepts of, of sovereignty that you're working with. One, which seems problematic for you because it's not help us account for, as it were, uh, the ways in which sovereignty, as it were, the practice of sovereignty play out in the United States, for instance, though not only so, but before we, we go there, I, I wanted to kind of just inhabit a little bit this question of what is what is the problem with the death penalty as such, right? Um, for Derrida and for you as well, right? So on the one hand, you have these discourses that affirm the kind of the sanctity of life, right? Which, as you're sort of saying, some abstract concept of human dignity and so on. But that's not quite the problem, right? With the death penalty, as it were. So the challenge is, for abolitionists is how do we, on the one hand, make the case for another form of life that does not involve the sovereign right to punish, but also to to lay out mercy, as you're saying, right, which also preserves the sovereign's uh, right uh, as well. So you know, what, what is really the problem for, for Derrida? The problem is, in a way, about finitude, right, which is the the possibility of there being a future, right, of, of a future that is still to come of the incalculability of life. So if the abolition of the death penalty would actually imply that, then what we're talking about is the possibility of the incalculability of the instant of death. In the death penalty machine that we call prisons today, that moment of incalculability is sort of nullified, right? So the sort of disposability of certain forms of life, particularly black and brown life, the calculable warehousing and premature death of those populations, is an instance of that, um, which is also the other side of the coin of white bourgeois life, right? Of yeah. settler white bourgeois life, right? The life protected by biopolitical calculation, right? Uh, the life behind the walls of the gated community, right? Of the so-called safe campuses and so on. So can, can you sort of talk a little bit about that and what is really at stake and what the problem is also of, which I think often does happen in our movements, right? Affirming abolition of death penalty and of the social death of prisons for some kind of human dignity or some kind of concept of, of life? Yes. Yeah, I think, I mean, so much depends on how we understand life. Do we understand life as the property of an, indiv of an individual, as a property that is sacred or sanctified, property that you can, that you have rights in relation to, and that you may have the right to defend to the death? Um, or do we understand life as a matrix of living relationality or of living dying relationality, which is both, which involves both active and passive or um, responsive and agential relations to other living beings, both human and more than human. Do we understand life as a process of living that uh, is not centered in uh, the individual subject and cannot be reduced to or reified as 
property or as a thing to be um, worshipped or defended. I think so much depends on the way that we understand life. And I think as a phenomenologist, I, I, I approach this question of life and of living relationality in terms of a kind of what I call critical phenomenology. So if we understand life as a kind of a thing or a property that one could have or lose, then we are in effect naturalizing a separation between uh, the subject and their own life, the subject's life and the lives of other beings. And this is what this is akin to what I think Kim Talbert, indigenous scholar, calls thingification, or it's akin to the Marxist concept of reification. We turn life into a valuable or devalued property that can be won or lost. But uh, if, if we approach that kind of reified or thingified sense of life as a kind of property, as a critical phenomenologist, then we're called upon to sort of bracket the naturalization of life as valued or devalued property and to lead back from the, the thing as a separate entity to all the relationships that constitute the meaning of that no longer thing, but of, of our relationships that constitute the effect of a life and a, of a living community. And so I, one of the things I really appreciate about Derrida's work on the death penalty, although I don't think that he put, develops this analysis far enough, is the way he talks about, um, he sort of leads back from, for example, Victor Hugo's affirmations of the dignity of life as a hyper-valued kind of property that, that he understands himself as being deeply invested in. And one of the reasons why Victor Hugo is against the death penalty is because he doesn't want the blood of others on his hands, that it paints and it renders guilty his own life. Derrida, I think, rightly finds this too narrow uh, kind of investment in life. And he leads us back. I don't think Derrida would say this is a critical phenomenology that he's offering, but uh, he's deconstructing that sense of sanctity of life as a kind of thing that can be won or lost. Um, but from my perspective as a critical phenomenologist, he's leading us back to the sort of relational entanglements of what he calls the heart. And so the living heart is this affective relationship that one is not in control of that is the what sustains one's living becoming uh, and that is what I think needs to be at the heart of our abolitionist movements and that is at the heart of many abolitionist movements and so I'm inspired by the work of Alexis Gums who challenges us to to reflect on the place where we stand and our relationships to the soil to the other living beings to the um, to the to the living and the dead, and to root our abolitionist movements in a kind of a reclamation and affirmation of all these complicated relationships um, that are messy, that are not at all pure, and that aren't really based on principles, but rather based on relationships. 
And so I see this kind of conversation arising in the context of, for example, the Black Lives Matter movement. So when Fred Moten um, offers his analysis of the murder of Mike Brown and says that what Darren Wilson was shooting into on, on that day was not just a an in the life of an individual who was black, but rather shooting into black life as a form of sociality that challenges the very kind of investments in propertyed personhood that sustain white supremacy. Then I think he's also articulating something like this um, affirmation of living relationality as a political force and as a kind of ontological force that is so important both for our political movements and for our thinking. Yeah, thank you so much. I mean, there's so much, it feels like this just opens up a whole series of other questions uh, for us to think about. I mean, uh, how we think about life in relation to not only the death penalty, but as you're saying, being the world, right? Which is a world that is precisely, as you said, a world that is thinkified and reified rather than a world of relations. It's precisely what abolition seeks to, in a way, uh, interrupt, right? This kind of circulation, this kind of economy uh, of punishment and, and so on. Before we wrap up, is there anything else you would like to add? We know that you are kind of rethinking some of previous work in relation to scholars like Glenn Coulthard and, and others around settled colonialism. Uh, would you like to talk about that or is there anything else you'd like to add? Yeah, I guess. So I've been really inspired by Indigenous accounts of relationality and of uh, what Glenn Coulthard calls grounded normativity or the, a, practice, a praxis of thinking and acting that is uh, responsive to place and to the particular relationships that constitute place. Mm-hmm. And in thinking through the interrelationship of carceral power and colonial power and the sort of sovereign power that underwrites slavery, I suppose in my own work, I'm, I'm struggling to make sense of how the, the places where we live and the ground that we walk, what, what does that ask of us? And what sort of critical interruptions do we have to make both in our own thinking and our own relationships, and also in broader relationships in our communities, in order to even just make visible where we are and how that shapes who we are. Totally. Well, thank you so much for for joining us today, Lisa, and hopefully we'll be able to talk with you soon. Okay, thank you so much for the conversation. Thanks for tuning in. You can listen to past episodes or read their transcripts on our website at www.rustbeltradio.org. This show was co-produced by the Rust Belt Abolition Radio Crew, A. Maria, Cape Syed, and Alejo Stark. Original music by Bad Infinity.